Where do you go for answers to the big questions in life? Ones like, where did we come from? What's my purpose? What's the source of all that's wrong in our world? Fortunately, God hasn't left us without answers, and that's what we're going to be talking about in our podcast today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Prant, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Our topic today is Genesis and Job. Foundational Answers to the Big Questions of Life. This is part one. There are so many things to cover. I've put it in two parts, but let's get started. By way of introduction, as you start through the Bible in chronological historical order, if you're using the reading plan that we recommend on Bible 805, you might be asking, just to start off, why in the world are we reading Genesis and Job together? Now, that's a great question, and I've got some detailed answers for you in this lesson. When you open your Bible, obviously it starts with the book of Genesis, and then in most Bibles, the book of Job is close to the middle of the Bible, just before Psalms. However, in many chronological Bible reading plans, it's placed near the beginning of the book of Genesis. Well, why do scholars do that? Why do people that put together these plans do it? The books are put together because they really do belong together. As you will see, and I'm going to be giving you quite a bit of documentation on this, they were written by the same author. This might be surprising to some. Both Genesis, in fact the whole Pentateuch, and Job, I believe, and as do many, many others, that they were all written by Moses. Though in both cases, he's actually, you might say, much more of an editor than an actual author in the way we think of an author today as the one who creates all the content. He didn't really do that. He obviously did not come up with the story of creation or God's laws, nor did he come up with the content of the book of Job. But he is the one that put it, edited it, put it in its final form. The words are not originally his. They are, of course, revealed from God, and he also, and I've talked about this in other um, podcasts and lessons on how we got our Bible, he most likely had access to written, oral, and written records of others that he accessed. They were written down, both books, Genesis and Job, I believe, at the same time and in the same place. And in this lesson, I'm going to go into much more detail of why this is so. And not only that, not only just the historical facts of the creation of the books, but even more importantly, it's just incredibly important to correctly read Job early in Genesis, not just because, again, as I said, it's chronologically correct, but for how these two books give us answers to the big questions of life, ones that I think we need right at the start of reading God's Word. So what are the big questions I'm referring to? How did we get here? What messed things up? Who is Satan and what power does he have? Is there life after death? What about people who've never heard of Jesus? Why do innocent people suffer? How can we help people who are suffering? What does God want from me? What is our purpose in life? 
I think we'd all agree that these are pretty big questions, very important to answer, and I believe that the book of Job and the book of Genesis give us true information on them. The benefits of answering these questions, of course, it seems that many people today are just drifting in fear and frustration. They don't know who they are or what they want to do. They stumble through their days and they fear the end of life. But imagine what life would be like if you knew, if you knew why you're here, what caused humanity's problems, and how we can live meaningful lives even in the midst of those problems. God gave us that information. We have the answers in Job and Genesis. But the question is, why don't most people know that? I think a lot of it has to do with the pervasiveness of what is called an anti-supernatural mindset. This is the mindset where people approach any spiritual or religious topic and along with it, the books in the Bible, with the belief, and by the way, this is a belief without any concrete evidence. It's simply a belief. And that is that supernatural events cannot happen. This mindset does not believe in a real Satan or God. The anti-supernatural mindset also believes that the book of Genesis is not a true account of reality, but that it is a creation myth intended to explain away the beginnings of the world. Also, this whole viewpoint relegates the book of Job to a book that was written much later, and it makes it into a literary fable with Job as a mythical character. It then, to follow the anti-supernatural mindset, says that the recording in Job of the interactions of God and Satan and of Satan's direct effects on Job's life, that they're just a myth, that they're not really a report of true events. Then the results of this, they're devastating. Sadly, even to some who call themselves Christians, because it robs both books of the power of answering the previous big questions that I talked about, and it leaves us without the involvement of a personal and powerful God in history from the start of creation to our lives today. In contrast, if both books come from God and were God's earliest communication to humanity, which I believe they were, what they have to say is incredibly important for us individually and for all of human history. In addition, if you approach the Bible with an anti-supernatural bias, where do you stop? Do you just say that about Genesis and Job? Does that mean that you do away with any content in the Bible that is difficult to understand or that appears to have a a supernatural component? Do you just do away with that? If you accept the Bible as a valid historical document, and many people who do not identify as Christians do that, how do you pick and choose between what you consider true historical statements in the Bible and false ones if it doesn't depend on facts, but on your just what we call an a priori opinion, an opinion without any facts. You just say, well, it's historical, but I don't like what it says here. For example, 
There are two biblical writers accepted by many as historical persons who consider Job a real person. The first one is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest. He was an exile from Israel who was deported from Jerusalem, from Israel, Jerusalem specifically to Babylon, prior to the fall of Jerusalem. He, of course, wrote the book that has his name on it. And in a passage where God is giving him a message about coming judgment, this is the way he writes it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Here God speaks, and Ezekiel repeats his words with a clear sense that these three are real persons. Now, why do I say that? What and you know, the thing that you have to realize is what point would it make to mention them if they're only fables? Remember, starting out with Daniel. Daniel was Ezekiel's contemporary. He was actually exiled to Babylon a few years earlier than than Ezekiel was. He was obviously a real person. Ezekiel knew him. He lived at the same time. He lived in the same place that Ezekiel did. As for the historical reality of Noah, that is verified by Jesus himself when he used him to illustrate how the world would be prior to his second coming in Matthew 24, 37, and 38. Reading it in the sense that the two other men, as verified by history and Jesus, were also historical persons, it follows that Job would be also. You wouldn't mention people in a group to prove something if one was false and the other two were real. But that isn't the only verification of historical reality of Job by a biblical writer. Now, one other historical person in the New Testament, James, refers to Job as a real person. James was a leader in the early church. He was actually the human one of the human brothers of Jesus. And he says in James 5.11, As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Is James just using a fable to affirm God's compassion? It would be like saying the story of Cinderella assures us that every woman will find a prince charming. And though sadly some people do believe that, we know it isn't true, and Cinderella can't really, you know, affirm that to us. To make Job a mythical representation of suffering reduces it to the level of a fairy tale. No matter how patronizing accompanying comments might be about what a great literary masterpiece it is. That just <laughs> makes me so angry when I read stuff. They go, oh, you know, it's it's this really just this great piece of literature. But we know it's all totally false. Oh, baloney. That just, you know, just don't call it something great and then say it's all false. To make Job a fictional character, you would have to discount Ezekiel and James and what they taught, both about God's judgment and his mercy, using Job and others as examples. What do you do then with Jesus' affirmation of Noah as a real person? Most people believe Jesus wouldn't lie. An anti-supernatural viewpoint is logically very difficult to sustain. It's much easier to simply accept the Bible as it defines itself as a true record of true events and to approach the book of Job as the record of real interactions between Job, 
God, and Satan. If you haven't listened to or read How Truth and History Confirm, We Can Trust the Christian Bible, it's a series of four lessons. Please do it, as it's very important, not only for the study of this book, but for all you read in the Bible. In that series, we look at the various ways that history helps us determine what is true. To review, among other things, we look at geography, the dating of events, both when they took place, when they were recorded. We look at what others wrote and when they wrote. With objective criteria in mind now, the criteria that we talked about in this series, let's look at what sources outside the book of Job are that confirm the reality of Job instead of just approaching him and his book with an anti-supernatural bias. Now we've already looked at how the historical writers of the Bible wrote about Job as a real person, but what other evidence do we have? Here are some additional areas that help us conclude the historical reality of Job. We look at the witness of tradition. The IRC website has a really good comment on this, and uh, let me quote it. And by the way, on this and all of the other things that I quote, if you just go to the website, www.bible805.com, I have the citations for everything in the notes section under the podcast. So it's all cited. I won't, you know, obviously read that. I try to let you know when I get something somewhere else because I certainly want to get credit to where credit is due. But let me let me read you this from IRC. Uniform Jewish tradition ascribed the book of Job to Moses and also accepted it as part of the true canon of scripture. This description seems quite reasonable if Moses is regarded as the editor and original sponsor of Job's books rather than his author. Undoubtedly, Job himself was the original author, as it talks about in Job 19, writing down his memoirs, so to speak, after his restoration to health and prosperity. Moses most likely came into possession of Job's record during his 40-year exile from Egypt in the land of Midian, not far from Job's own homeland in Uz, and quickly recognized its great importance, perhaps slightly editing it for the benefit of his own contemporaries. It was in all probability similar to how he compiled and organized the primeval records from which he has also given us the book of Genesis. That being the case, the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It contains more references to creation, the flood, and other primeval events than any book of the Bible except Genesis and provides more insight into the age-long conflict between God and Satan than almost any other book. As I've considered it too, it seems to me, and this is this is not verified by scholarship at all, this is just my opinion, that Moses really needed the wisdom of Job for the work that he was called to do. He was going to go back and when he was going to uh, be the leader of all of these people leaving Egypt, of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. It was really a terrible job. He was facing 40 years of leading complaining, ungrateful, um, from all accounts, pretty unpleasant people through very, very difficult circumstances. He didn't seem to have a good day. He wasn't thanked for any. I mean, it was just, it was really a difficult time. And to do that required an astounding vision of God and his control over all of time and history. And that's what he would have gotten from the book of Job. And so I think that um, 
uh, it was no accident that God sent Moses to Midian for his exile, which happened to be right near us, which is where he would have gotten the material in the book of Job. Let's now look just at the geographical evidence. Again, um, if you go to the website, you'll, you can, um, or actually this is in the Bible 805 Academy, you can see a map that has us and Midian on there, and they're just right next to each other. Uh, biblical archaeology also confirms this, that the two places were very close together. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't an accident that that's where God sent him. Now, on historically when the book was written, from all the contextual evidence that we see in the book, we believe that it was written around the time of the patriarchs, probably after the time of Abraham, but in a very similar setting because it describes a time that was obviously pre-law. It was before, uh, obviously before the children of Israel went into Egypt and then came back out and got the law. There's no evidence of a written law. Job, as um, uh, was done in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's time, he made personal sacrifices for his family. There is no formal priesthood or temple structure or any strong overall government talked about or mentioned in any way in the book. Now, let me summarize and review the evidence that we have so far. Based on tradition, biblical confirmation, the historical and geographical evidence that we have, we believe Job was a real person who lived about the time of the patriarchs, that what took place in the book are true events, that what happened in the book was supernaturally revealed to Job and recorded in its final form by Moses. For us, it then follows that this book, as with all the Bible, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us up and helps us do what is right. That's why we can use the books of Job and Genesis to answer the big questions of life, so let's get into it. Now, I know this has been a little bit of a lengthy introduction, but this is really important. If we want to answer these very serious big questions of life, I wanted you to have a solid foundation for why we're using the book of Job to do that. Now let's look at an overview of Job and then from it and Genesis answer some of the big questions. In the following lessons, we're going to cover some additional material on Genesis. This isn't the only lesson that we'll uh, have to do with Genesis, but this one and the next one will be about Genesis and Job, and then I will be talking about other things on Genesis. First, an overview of Job. The book opens describing Job as God's ideal man. We'll talk more later about what made him that way. That'll actually be in part two. Satan appears before God and challenges God that Job only serves him because God blesses him. To see if that's true, God allows Satan to harm Job and he loses wealth, family, and finally his health. His three friends, and then a fourth one shows up later, come to comfort Job theoretically, but instead they accuse and they repeat false beliefs about God. Job consistently defends himself and demands a defense before God. God responds and shows his power. Now it's important to note though that God never answers Job's questions. Job demands this, he demands that, he demands that, but then God shows up 
and he does not say or do what what Job expected. Job repents, and he is restored. That was an overview, but now let's dig deeper and look at some of the big questions the book of Job answers. First question, how did we get here? That's answered in both books. In the beginning, God is how Genesis starts, and the book continues with a record of God's creation in all things. God as creator is confirmed in Job when God confronts him and begins by establishing who he, God, is on the basis of creation when he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? This reality that God created us is a foundation for his claims on us and the answer to our questions for meaning and fulfillment in life. The rest of the Bible affirms God's creation as in Psalm 103 where it says he made us and in Acts 17:28 it says in him we live and move and have our being. There is no such thing as a self-made man. <laughs> that just does not exist. Humanity also is not the result of time plus chance. We were created by a loving God who knows what is best for us and designed our lives for meaning and purpose. We sometimes trivialize the description of the Bible as the owner's manual and for best functioning of life we tell people read the directions but that's really a true statement. It is the owner, God's manual for how we should live our life. And life will function best when we follow the directions in it. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Knowing a good God created us, what messed things up? Genesis tells us part of that story. Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan rather than God. God gave humanity one, only one, negative command. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know they did. We call this action the fall. Now, what were the consequences of this fall? Adam and Eve were driven from the garden and from the tree of life. They would experience death physical and spiritual. In the original language it actually says dying you will die. They died spiritually when God removed them from the garden and when their eyes were opened but they would also die now physically. Their sin nature would be passed on to their children. Their work was cursed. Now work it's, now it's really important here. They weren't given work as a curse. That's totally wrong. They had work to do in the Garden of Eden. Work is a gift to us, but the work was cursed. It would now be difficult for them to do. Creation itself is cursed. Satan was somewhere in this, and I don't understand all the timing on it. He was affirmed and established as a prince in the power of the air. But also, in grace... A Savior was promised, which is what the rest of the story of the Bible is all about. How paradise one day will be restored, and people will once again forever walk with their Creator.
From this we learn the core of temptation never changes. You know, Satan is not at all original. What he used then, he continues to use now. And what he used then is where he said, Did God really say? Sin always begins with questioning if God really does know what is best for us, and it then progresses to an alternative that sounds good, but is ultimately destructive. To stand up against that testing takes two things. One, you need to know God's word. You need to know what he wants you to do. And then you also, though, need to exercise your will. Even if it hurts or is difficult to do what he wants, God will not just automatically make us do the right thing. We have to exercise our will. We know that's hard because we have an enemy who fights us at every turn. But though the book of Job tells us that the enemy is real, it also affirms that Satan's power is limited. We see this very clearly in the book of Job. We see that Satan is subordinate to God. This is extremely important for you to understand. There is no dualism in the Bible, in the Christian faith. God and Satan are not equal powers battling it out. Satan is always subordinate. In Job 1, Satan appears before God in a place of obvious submission. God questions him. God limits him. We see this as a foundational lesson in Job. And it's also in the New Testament, where in 1 John 4, 4, it affirms, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Satan is, and his influence is what it's referring to. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. A little bit more about Satan. He once held a place of honor before God, but he rebelled and was removed from that place. In Isaiah 14, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, mighty though you were against the nations of the world. Ezekiel 28 gives more details. Please read it when you have time. But continuing with our current lesson, Job shows us that Satan has access to God and he is allowed to initiate natural disasters, crime and death, and sickness. But again, they are all under God's control and limitations. Additionally, Satan is restless. He wanders the earth, and he's an accuser of people, then and now. We see in Job 1.7 where the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. In the New Testament, we see this hasn't changed. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be careful. Watch out for attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion, looking for some victim to tear apart. We are reminded that we're not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies, the evil rulers of the unseen world, whose mighty satanic beings and great evil princes of darkness who rule this world, and against huge numbers of wicked spirits in the spirit world. In that wandering, also remember that Satan accuses God's people. God points out the blameless life of Job, and Satan responds, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan will twist every good thing in our lives into something evil. 
that chatter in your head will constantly tell you what a mess you are, how you're guilty, you did all this wrong, you're terrible, you're awful, all of that, that seldom comes from God. When God convicts us, he always gives us a way to be better, a way to do better. He reminds us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanses us. Satan simply pounds on you. Don't listen to him. Evaluate your life in light of God's word. Confess your sin if necessary and press ahead assured of God's love and forgiveness. Now, this is kind of hard, but that's also why slander, gossip, and thinking evil of our brothers and sisters, of anyone, is so wrong. You see, when we do that, we're doing Satan's work, and we really shouldn't do that. But this will not last forever. Satan is under God's control, he's under God's limits. We see this clearly in Job, that God gives Satan permission to do certain things, but he sets limits to them. Even that will someday come to an end, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. The accusing chatter in our minds will cease. In Revelation 12.10 it says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. But will we be around to see that? Is there life after death? That's a big question in Job and much of the rest of the Bible. But there's a great passage that answers it in Job 14, 14 and 15, where it says, If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I wait for my renewal to come. You will call, and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. There's a few notes that I want to say on this passage that are so neat when I really started studying it. Not only is it just a glorious affirmation of life after death and of what our Redeemer does. And I know, I would imagine some of you are are hearing the strains of the Messiah playing in the background on. This is where uh, he got that passage, I know my Redeemer lives. But in that, uh, the section of the verse where he says, I wait for my renewal to come, that's the Hebrew root, chalifa. And it means a change of garments, a renewal. It's so similar to, remember how the Apostle Paul talks about exchanging his earthly tent for a heavenly one. And Job back then, he was going to change his garment, change his tent, if you will. And then basar, um, where he talks about how my skin will be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. That's the same word. That's the same Hebrew word. And you see, he's saying that the flesh, the body that I have, I will have another one, just like it. 
the same thing. I will see God. The resurrection for the Christian, and we don't know all the details, but Scripture clearly tells us that it is solid, it is tangible, it is a renewal into what we were created to be. Even early in his struggles, Job knew this. As the passage we just discussed showed, in his earthly pain, he knew that was not all there was to his story. But there are sadly many, even some in the church, and some who teach the Bible, I've heard this, say that, well, in the Old Testament there was no clear belief of life after death. That is simply not true as this passage in Job and many others show. I am revising and re-recording the previous lesson, Is There Life After Death? And the answer is a resounding yes. That is the answer of the entire Bible, as this lesson proves that I'm, I'm working on re-recording. And I'm almost done with it, so it'll be, um, it will be uh, up online just a few days after this one is. That will go into much more detail. It'll be on the Bible 805 podcast and the Bible 805 Academy. But I did want to address it briefly here because this is incredibly important to understand. Because remember, as the Apostle Paul tells us, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The other lesson will go into detail on how the truth of life after death is clearly taught throughout the entire Old Testament. And back to our current lesson, it's important to understand that this teaching was clear in Job, which is possibly the earliest book of the Bible written down. And most certainly, it was the earliest in oral form. This is a core foundational belief of the people of God. Of the many big questions that this of life that this book answers, this is definitely the most important because it literally puts everything else that happens to us into proper perspective. As one commentator said, and I don't remember who said this, but it really made an impression on me. He said, if we truly believe in the promised joy of a fulfilling, meaningful eternity spent with those we love and a God who loves us, even the most horrible experiences of this life will seem like a night spent in a bad hotel. You might be in that horrid bad hotel right now, but be assured that as the book of Job shows us and the rest of the Bible affirms, joy will come. There are many more questions and answers in Job and Genesis, but we have to stop here for right now. In our next lesson, we'll answer these questions. What about people who've never heard of Jesus? Why do innocent people suffer? How can we help people who are suffering? What does God want from us? What is our purpose in life? We find the answers to all these questions in Job when it's correctly dated and understood. Please listen to or watch the lessons and learn them well for a solid foundation in your Christian life. That's all for now. If the podcast has been useful to you, please support it through your donations and prayers. For how to do that, plus notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Prend your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved.
from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.